This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. And I'm Kevin McClinton. And this week's episode, Wade, is like the film that we're talking about today, a once-in-a-generation type of event. Kevin, I wanted to ask you a question. Have you ever seen a white tiger? It truly is a mesmerizing experience. I mean, is it, though? I... I have not seen a white tiger in the flesh, but I'm, I'm skeptical that it's as revelatory as you're making it out to be. You know, Kevin, every time I look in the mirror, I see a white tiger. I don't know how to react to that, so we'll just move on. <laughs> Listeners, this week we are going to be reviewing Ramin Barani's new film for Netflix titled The White Tiger. And we promise we won't make you listen to any Rocky-inspired Eye of the Tiger boxing montages. Part of me is a little bit disappointed, but that's okay. Stay tuned for that review on this episode of Seeing and Believing. Do you know what the internet is? No, sir. But I could drive to the market right now, sir, and get as many as you want. Nah, it's okay. Thank you. Do you have Facebook? Yes, sir, b- books. I always loved books, sir. Yeah, I heard you can read. Have you ever seen a computer? Uh, yes, sir. Actually, we had many of them in the village with the goats. Goats? Yes, sir. The goats are pretty advanced to use computers. I could tell from their faces. I had made a mistake. Pinky, you see, he's got two, three years schooling in him. He can't read and write. Or he doesn't get what he's read. He's half-baked. Okay, now you're being a jerk. He's standing right there. I'm I'm not being a jerk. Come on, Ashok. You're missing the point here, Pinky. Our driver represents the biggest untapped market in India. Waiting to surf the web, buy a cell phone, rise up into middle class. Something I can help him do. You're the new India, Balram. I am the new India, sir. Listeners, you are here with episode 278 of Seeing and Believing. Kevin, it's good to be back. It's good to talk to you. I know we've we've technically been back for two weeks, but I'm still I'm still experiencing a little anxiety. Just imagining what would it be like if you were gone for two more months again. No need to worry. You can put those anti-anxiety meds back in the medicine cabinet. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm here to stay. Yeah, you're not having any kids uh, in the next couple of months. So, so th- that, wor- <laughs> that works out. Listeners, we got a fantastic episode for you today. We're going to be talking about the white tiger. We're also going to offer you some of our recommendation. Maybe you're at home. Most of us spend a lot of time at home these days. You need some recommendations. We'll have that at the end of the show. First off, though, we want to take an opportunity and thank all of our listeners who've supported us via our Patreon campaign. If you'd like to do that, just head on to patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast. Thank you so much, listeners who've chosen to support us. You really do keep this show 
going. We're going to jump into our episode. We're doing something a little bit different this week. We're only reviewing one movie, but this is a film that's been gaining in traction this last Friday. Netflix released The White Tiger. Here's the movie's official synopsis. The epic journey of a poor Indian driver who must use his wit and cunning to break free from servitude to his rich master's and rise to the top of the heap. We did mention that this is directed by Ramin Barani, and it does star Adarsh Garav in the lead role. Kevin, we talked about uh, Barani's previous, well, one of his previous films, 99 Homes, on the podcast, but we haven't dug into any of his other films and given them the full-length review here on the show. So I'm excited to talk about his new movie. So Kevin, as we go ahead and get started, I think it needs to be pointed out that Barani's, one of his previous films from, I believe it was 2006, was named one of the best movies of the decade by Roger Ebert, which is a pretty high honor. So Barani has incredible skill, and there are a number of people who've noticed it and really kind of championed his work over the years. As we talk about The White Tiger, I want to get some of your initial responses. And do you see some of that talent on stage with with this movie that was just recently released by Netflix? Yeah, uh, Barani's other other work, particularly I've I've heard uh, obviously Chop Shop's got quite a reputation. Man Push Cart is also one of his films I've heard a lot of great things about. I but I haven't gotten around to either of them yet. It's kind of an embarrassing uh, blind spot in my movie watching experience. So I was glad to at least that this new film uh, made it onto Netflix. So it was something that you know could be easily accessible. And I could at least you know, watch it while I'm kind of getting my ducks in a row to catch up with the rest of Barani's uh, filmography. There's a lot of um, uh, interesting stuff on display pretty much from, from the very beginning. The the opening scene, which is uh, kind of a flash forward, as as you will, like with a, there's a voiceover and then a freeze frame. And our narrator, the main character, Balram, says, wait, 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 essentially, let's let's back up to the beginning of the story. <laughs> and I mean, right there, you're just like, okay, I, I'm watching something that's, you know, very much informed by Scorsese, very much kind of has that kind of um, energy and playfulness that makes for a promising start. And as the film goes on, you also begin to notice a lot of uh, of class commentary that, especially in in the wake of Bong Joon Ho's Parasite and its you know, uh, sweeping of the Oscars, is something that it's not surprising to see more of in its wake, but is always very much welcome. Uh, that said, I don't know that the white tiger really wowed me quite as much as uh those other films i mentioned did but uh there's there's still a lot to recommend about it and yeah i'm Mm. looking forward to uh, seeing what you think as well yeah you know i i think it's a i think it's a fine film it's it's propulsive in many ways it's it's energetic and and you alluded to that you mentioned that and i I appreciate that aspect of the movie. I appreciate that it gives us something to wrestle with. It 
it puts everything out there for us. Now, the film's kind of messy in that regard, but at least it makes me feel something. And I gotta say, I, I finished the movie, and I thought to myself, okay, yeah, yeah, like it, like it's fine. There are some noticeable flaws. But I, I think it's worth pointing out, I thought about this movie a lot, and I've seen it, I saw it a, a day ago. The last 24 hours, I, I've you know, fallen asleep thinking about this movie and some of the images and some of the ideas and woken up thinking about this movie. And so there, there is, a, there is a, a message, an idea, scenes on display that are really worth just exploring. And I, I commend the movie in that regard. It's, I spent a really short amount of time in India in college and I remember watching Slumdog Millionaire from Danny Boyle, and I I, I like the movie. I, I I think I think it's good, but anytime I've watched it, I've always thought to myself, it it feels like it it lacks complication, and it's definitely a feel good story. That rags to riches. I think what the White Tiger does, even if it's not as as tight or even as entertaining as Slumdog Millionaire, is it examines this individual's life and the culture kind of surrounding him and the upward mobility or lack of mobility uh, that's around him. And it shows just how kind of complicated his world is and how difficult it is for him to get to the top and then what's required to, to get to the top. And it's also funny because the, the narrator directly refers to Slumdog Millionaire in the movie. And so I, I, I appreciate those aspects of, of the film. Yeah, there is that, of course, that scene where Balaram kind of tweaks the nose of Slumdog Millionaire uh, <laughs> yeah. indirectly by saying, this isn't going to be some, some feel-good, you know, million, $1 million game show answer that's going to make everything all right. And, you know, as his character, you know, buys a, buys a bottle of alcohol and, and, you know, starts to kind of like drink away his, his anguish at what his employers are are forcing him to do. Um, so it's definitely very self-conscious about in some ways acting as a corrective to the image that a lot of people who will be watching this film on Netflix kind of have of, of India, both the, uh, the, the, the poverty in India and also the, the, the class dynamics and the cultural dynamics at play, it definitely seems to want to take that and say, like, there's the sanitized version that you've seen, or there's this version that kind of allows you to feel comfy and removed a little bit from the situation. And Barani is really trying with this film to take away that that comfortable remove. He, he very much uh, tries to be more confrontational, uh, with the way that uh, his, especially with the, the final shot where, you know, we get these you know, characters looking straight down the, the lens of the camera and forcing the viewers to contend with it. But also in the way that the, the characters of the, uh, the rich people, the masters, as they're called in, in this film, the way they're characterized is also a pretty subtle way of really trying to puncture the the comfort that a lot of 
uh, richer people in more developed nations kind of feel about these kinds of stories. So there's this uh, basic dynamic that's set up early on in the film where uh, th- there are masters and servants in, in the film's telling of India. And he, he talks about how the servants are kind of bred to believe they're kind of just, they're, they're chickens in a coop. And they know what's coming for them. They know that they're going to be eventually pulled out and slaughtered or just discarded. And yet they don't they never try to escape and they just kind of passively await their end. And then of course there are the the masters who are rich and powerful and really don't care what they do or whom they hurt as long as they get what they want. And that is, is of course really uh, driven home with these landlords that uh, Balram and his family have to deal with, uh, who, who kind of come down by his small village every now and then and shake his family down for a bunch of money. And they, they kind of have this very traditional outlook where the underclasses are kind of people to be either ignored or abused, depending on how convenient it is for the upper class at any given time. Now, Barani actually introduces kind of a a different facet to that side when he brings in these two other rich characters, uh, Ashok and Pinky Madam, played by Raj Kumar Rao and Priyanka Chopra, respectively, who are very much, they're, they're very Americanized in their attitudes. They both, uh, uh, Pinky uh, grew up in America and Ashok uh, went over to America to to study, and they met each other and got married. So they come back bringing a lot of these more westernized attitudes about poverty with them. And over the course of the film, Barani kind of teases out that the they're not really more enlightened about poverty than the more openly contemptuous and abusive landlords are. They just think that if they're nice enough and and kind of like you know pat poor people on the head often enough, then that will excuse them for being callous in any number of other different ways. And that's kind of the dynamic that the film as a whole is really trying to shake into the the audience is to say like, there's not just sort of the the mustache twirling bad guys who are oppressive landlords and the the saintly underclass and then, you know, maybe the, the philanthropists who are also the good guys. There are really shades of gray in all of these. And that's something that I think the film does very interestingly. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think Pinky's character to me is one of the most fascinating in all the film because she spent a good deal of her life in America and she's the one that stands up for Balram and she's probably the nicest to him. But yet, she's still a part of this system, this hierarchy. And even when she tries to find a way to break out or possibly even give Balram a a leg up, uh, we get the sense that she's not necessarily doing all that she can. She's She's not blameless here. And I think that complication really helps. And I think... I, I think the comparison you made uh, to something like Parasite uh, is it, pretty good. I like Parasite uh, a lot. It's it's fantastic. I think it's it's a better film than this one. But 
we do get the upper and the lower visualized in Parasite, and yet it's not, oh, the lower just needs to kind of lower class needs to overthrow the upper class and it'll be fine. There's complication there. And I think this movie has some of that complication. And so in a sense, you you say, well, at the end of the story, uh, nobody's blameless. Well, at the same time, acknowledging the places people are put in and and what they are, the decisions they're faced with in order to break out, in order to move up the ladder. And there's, there's sympathy there, uh, while at the same time saying, well, you know, not all is not all is right in the world. And I just, I love, I love those thought provoking angles uh, to the movie here. And, and I'll even say too, some of the photography here, I feel like is very sublime. Some of my favorite shots are the shots of these characters driving through uh, India, in especially Delhi, and we get these nighttime shots, and there's there's fog in the air, and it really does represent that world, uh, the the characters and the choices they're faced with. It's it's beautiful, but at the same time. A little bit ominous, and the those the the framing there, I, I think, is wonderful. And we get a number of of sublime shots. I, I think that's the best word to describe it. And throughout the movie, and just visually, kind of reinforce this this idea. I I think the film does kind of suffer a little bit from the way it's structured. We know at the beginning of the movie that Balram is an entrepreneur now and he's become successful and the film the film tracks that but his success story uh actually kind of goes across the screen pretty quick so i think i think the first part of the movie could have been cut down a bit and i'd like to see more from the last 10 minutes i think that's really it's just kind of a fascinating exciting uh, section of the movie and so I think some there's some structure problems, um, but like I said, it's easy to appreciate this movie because it does kind of make you feel something, and we don't always we don't always get that. I think you're absolutely right with your point about the the structure. Um, it does it feels like a lot of the interesting character transformation occurs kind of, as you say, in that last 10, 15 minutes of the film. And because it's not so much that's unconvincingly portrayed by uh, Adarsh Gaurav. It's not so much that it's uh, portrayed uh, poorly by Adarsh Gaurav or, or written or directed inadequately. It's more just a question of because structurally it's just kind of this tiny fraction of a two-hour film it it feels abrupt or uh thinly sketched simply by virtue of being so short and i think for me that's where the film falls down a little bit especially when you're thinking of a, a movie like parasite which just manages this tremendous balancing act of characterizing that central family in a way where we kind of are rooting for them. We we want, you know, we we are 
we start off on their side. They're kind of the underdogs and we're rooting for them. And then as that, as their new situation as servants in that rich uh, family's home uh, takes them into ever, you know, darker and, and more disturbing places, that's kind of, it's interesting to bring those well-sketched characters that we sympathize with and take us along that journey with them. And uh, Bong Joon-ho really does a great job of bringing forth the complexity of that situation and really forcing the viewer to confront not only who they are sympathizing with, but also why they're sympathizing with them. And I think with The White Tiger, that's really the missing ingredient here is that it, it kind of has this, for me, this veneer of righteous anger about the exploitation of workers and the unjust structures of society that perpetuate that exploitation. But it doesn't really feel like Barani has fully succeeded in making the audience feel uncomfortable in productive ways, I guess. Like that that closing shot that I mentioned earlier where uh, the these characters are looking right into the camera lens and we're kind of left with the impression that the you know these are, to use the movie's parlance, uh, roosters that have escaped the coop and now they're on the other side. It's it's kind of flashy and, and has this little frisson of, of confrontational power about it. But after it ends, you kind of feel like, I, I don't really know that it goes anywhere beyond that. It just feels a little bit like a surface level statement that packs a punch in the moment, but doesn't really sink into your bones in the way that Parasite's tale of of exploitation and what the system does to people and how uh, the system itself can cause you to justify any number of horrible things to yourself because you need to survive. That's not something I really see in The White Tiger. It really does kind of seem like uh, Balram is a sympathetic character. We're kind of meant to side with him. So the disturbing things that he does along the way there it's not so much that the film pulls its punches on showing how disturbing they are but it never really forces us to feel disturbed that this person that we've grown close to over the course of two hours is perpetrating them yes i i i agree with that and i i think there there are some there's some turns at the end that made me feel almost completely unsympathetic to the main character. He made certain decisions and I just, that, that really does hurt the story for me because you, you want to root for this individual and you want to see him build his business. And it's so fascinating how all of that comes about. Uh, It's, it's this commentary, and I would say American Dream, but it's it's not set in America, even though some of the lessons can be applied here. But the idea that you can work as hard as possible and still be left at the bottom. And so in order to get to the top, in order to become a quote-unquote entrepreneur in his world, you have to do something else. And it's tricky because you have to make this turn while at the same time, keeping us engaged with the character, keeping us sympathetic with the character. And I think that's why that second, that last really 10 minutes of the movie, I almost said second part, it would be a short second part. The last 10 minutes are so 
kind of critical because we do need to see some of these ideas play out. We do need to see this uh, almost downward spiral. I think that's I think that's very much uh, important. Also, themes of family relationships. Uh, I think those are displayed in a fascinating way across the film. You have characters who want to break free. They want to move into the modern world while also feeling those those close family ties. And they're faced with the question, do I, do I make a name for myself or create my own path or am I loyal to my family? And at times, for many of these characters, they have to choose. It's one or the other. And the way some of those tensions are explored, I think are are pretty pretty fantastic. It does, with some turns, kind of for me almost fall away at the end. It becomes more of a a large parable than a human story. Uh, very explicitly looks at that idea: who are you going to choose? Uh, when I would have liked something a little bit a little bit more intimate. Uh, if hopefully hopefully that makes sense. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Yeah, so I'm I'm conflicted on this because on the one hand, you know, we've we've all seen Goodfellas. It kind of starts off with this, you know, this character really aspiring to to be a gangster and then, you know, the the final act is all about him having that downward spiral that you mentioned and it's all very uh uh delirious and and we we've seen that kind of um that kind of style employed in this sort of story pretty frequently. And there's nothing wrong with that, but we've seen it before. So I did appreciate that Barani kind of takes a more matter-of-fact approach to the way that he portrays uh, this character's journey. The the um, the conversations that he has in his head, like there, there are multiple times throughout the film where he um, speaks to somebody who's just sitting in the car with him or who's you know, next to him in traffic, or he just kind of bumps into on the street. He just sort of has a conversation with them. There's no sort of uh, stylistic flourishes that Barani puts in to make it crystal clear from the outset that this is a, you know, not literally happening. It's it's something that's all inside the character's mind. Um, it's just, I, I, I appreciate that it's just very plain spoken that when he contemplates uh, doing harm to another person or committing a crime rather than having this grand flourish showing that this is all kind of a a hypothetical that he's working through in his thoughts. It's embodied in a physical flesh and blood person that he's speaking to. And that I appreciate how that that kind of makes it clear that even these thoughts that he's harboring in his heart will uh, have consequences on actual living human beings out there in the world. And I, I appreciate that approach from Barani. I think maybe the problem, though, is that when it's that matter of fact, it becomes a little bit hard to to read the, the character's journey in terms of what the film is trying to say about him. And it, I, I, for 
as good as Adarsh Garav's performance is in, in this lead role, I, and I think he is quite good, I just couldn't help feeling like I couldn't get a handle on 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 what his character was supposed to be. Like what was what was Barani trying to do with him? And part of that is because Barani isn't really trying to make things super explicit. He's just showing us the events and allowing us to draw our own conclusions. But I think maybe a firmer directorial hand would have would have helped kind of tie it all together in in a way that would have brought it brought it home a, a little bit more. I did want to highlight one thing that I thought was was really interesting and let me know what you think about this Wade. So the film opens with uh Balram uh writing an email to a, a Chinese premier who's going to be visiting India soon and he's uh, he's going to be visiting with some Indian entrepreneurs. And Balram s- says, well, I should s- start my story from the beginning. And in my uh, country, we begin all of our stories with a prayer to the gods. And which god should we should we pray to? There's so many in, you know, in world religions and in the Hindu re- religion specifically. And the way that Barani cuts that together, it's almost like this narration that we're reading is a prayer to the Chinese premier, almost. He, he opens with that prayer and then launches us into our story. And I think there's some interesting commentary to be drawn out from that in terms of the the, the power that uh, we, we ascribe to uh, these these powerful political figures or the way that entrepreneurship can kind of cause your focus to move from the divine to much more earthly matters when you think of the ultimate authority that you're you're trying to appeal to. Mm-hmm. Well, one that one aspect of that sort of narration and conversation is a bit confusing to me because uh, we we hear about this individual who's coming from a communist nation but wants to inject kind of capitalism into his country we also learn about a a socialist politician who is taking bribes and i didn't quite understand how those two pieces were supposed to fit together but the point that you're making here is is great because i i do get the sense that there's something kind of spiritual happening here and there's a direct reference to this communist leader about his country giving up on God, not believing in God. And we also get to examine the the deities within the Indian religion, not explicitly, but we do learn about some of them. There's a reference in the film too about uh, the gods that different religions serve and little idols are passed out and there's there's one that's actually present at a pretty important scene in in the movie and it it feels like someone is wrestling with the past and wrestling with this spiritual foundation the old and the new and trying to figure out where to go and it seems as if the movie is saying, "Hey, it's easy to say we're moving, we're moving on from the the quote unquote gods of the past and religion of the past, but we've just traded that for Mammon. 
Like we, we've just, we've given a spiritual designation to a person uh, and to money and to a title. And so that's, that's kind of what I got from those aspects of the movie. How about you, Kevin? I, I agree. It's it's sort of this brave new world that that we're living in. And Barani even underlines that a little bit by having this kind of revolve around uh, Bangalore, which is, you know, the, the part of the, the city in India that's sort of like the Silicon Valley of the subcontinent. And the the way that this technology is kind of moving us into this new future where, you know, you, you pray to, to the the old gods just to be you know, just to be safe and hedge your bets, as as Balram himself says, you hedge your bets because that's just, you know, it's good practice if nothing else. But you write emails to the premier. You you that stuff is much more concrete, and that's the thing that these characters really care so much more about. And like you say, it's mammon, and that's that that's maybe isn't as deeply as Warani wanted us to read that particular theme, but I think it's it's there especially for Christians who are interested in the intersection of spirituality and and money and and success. So good observation for sure. Listeners, that is our review of Netflix's The White Tiger. If you've seen it, have any thoughts, of course, we are always interested to hear them. You can email us at seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com or tweet us at cbelievepod on Twitter. Now, Wade, at this point, we are going to transition into our recommendation segment for this week, where we each recommend something from the world of television and or film for our listeners. What do you have for us this week? Yeah, so trying to really think through these themes that we are talking about, and we've touched on themes uh, of just the economy, social hierarchies, an individual who's trying to get ahead in life and feeling like it's it's almost impossible unless uh, that individual does something drastic. And so my mind came to a film that I probably have talked about before, but hey, it's okay because it's a fantastic movie. It's Robert Bresson's 1959 film Pickpocket. Uh, this is a French film. And it follows a thief who's released from prison, and he has to pickpocket in order to survive. He has to steal if he wants to make it. And there's something sort of, I mean, it's just very, very beautiful about this picture. It comes in at about an hour and 15 minutes, and yet it's it's humane and it's tragic and it's it's thought provoking, which is no surprise, right? It's it's uh, Bresson, and if our listeners have not checked that out, I would encourage you to do that. Like I mentioned, some similar themes, and and Bresson is just a master at putting together incredible stories. In you know, he's in in an hour and a half, an hour and fifteen minutes. It he really is. Uh, amazing what he does, the economy of his film. So Pickpocket from 1959 is my recommendation this week. Yeah, we must be uh, you know, tuned into each other uh, pretty well because I also, for my recommendation this week, have a French film from the 1950s. So well done, us. Uh, mine is uh, a little bit darker of a film than yours, but it does kind of have a similar... 
uh, oblique way of dealing with with morality and the the way that those those acts can stick with us uh, over the course of our lives. I'm my recommendation is H. G. Clouseau's 1955 film Diabolique. Uh, this is a movie about uh, two women. Uh, one of them is married to a boarding school headmaster, and the other one is the headmaster's mistress. And they team up to murder him, make it look like an accident, just so that they can be they can be free of him. And uh, it's a film that I really don't want to to say much more than that because I think part of the fun of this film is getting about halfway through the movie and not and realizing that it's not quite the story that you thought it was and you really don't know what's going on and I, I, I don't say that to mean like it's just it's ambiguous or, or arty or something like that it's very much uh, a film that is is Hitchcockian in a lot of ways, where uh, just enough mystery is maintained that you are pleasantly at sea, but you're very much involved in in uh, the the plot screws as they get tightened, and you can definitely see why the film itself ends with a title card saying. Like audience members, if you've seen this movie and liked it, please don't spoil it for your friends. Which you know, in the in the internet age, is kind of like an interesting little uh, quaint relic. But it points out just how important it is maybe to go into this film cold and just enjoy the ride because it's just a wonderful little thriller and has some very interesting things to say about the ways that uh, our our sins can come back to haunt us shall we say <laughs> and that's that's all i'm going to say about that but it's a it's a really good film diabolique from 1955 oh that sounds amazing i have not seen it I, I did i am thinking about this though kevin has there ever been a movie that was made where someone tries to kill someone else and things go exactly as planned question mark <laughs> <laughs> well it's you know it's funny in in uh in the white tiger they even talk about this a little bit where they say you know they're in in movies it's always you know the the somebody tries somebody kills somebody else and then they spend the rest of the movie just being haunted by the by the horrible act that they just did and how that that's just a trope that never gets subverted and, uh, I mean, it's a fair point to make because there really aren't that many films where somebody just murders somebody and there's like, oh, wow, I'm glad I'm rid of them. Now I will continue <laughs> on with my life. It just doesn't, doesn't happen too often. Yeah. The, the detective is just lazy and, and doesn't ever follow up on any leads. You're like, oh man, this is great. <laughs> I, I will say that, that Diabolique has this great detective character who shows up maybe two thirds of the way through the film and is just delightful, both in terms of just the way he's he's portrayed, but also because you and the audience are really not sure whether you want him to succeed. So it's I don't know, it's it's just a really clever movie and and I liked it quite a bit. <laughs> that's no, that's that's great. I, I I need to check it out. I need to carve out some some time for that. Listeners, that is our show today. A couple things we want to remind you to rate and review us on iTunes. It's, it's always great to get new reviews. Just hop on over, search for Seeing and Believing. You'll see our icon, click that. And then 
We would love to get your thoughts. Whether you have an idea about a movie that we could review, or maybe you want to comment on our review, definitely do that. I know with uh, The White Tiger being on Netflix, a lot of people have access to it, which has not always been the case with a couple of films that we've reviewed lately just because of the crazy release schedule. So more people are watching it. We'd love to get more of your comments. Tweet us at CBeliefPod, at CBeliefPod. You can also email us, seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. It's brought to you by ChristandPopCulture.com. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. My co-host is Kevin McLenathan. And until next time, this is Seeing and Believing. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0.